Welcome to The Label Podcast, a show about disability, illness and difference. I'm Lucy. And I'm Alice. And that's Lola. Don't forget in this episode, I might swear, Lucy might cry, and you can check out details of the trigger warnings on our website. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Labelled Podcast. Guess what? What? Today is <laughs> our Christmas episode. Yay! Can we all be playing like Step Into Christmas and like Slay this stuff? I have already, we've got, uh, having our, we're having our bathroom done and I have already ruined Whamageddon for uh, the Tyler who's in today because that is my favourite Christmas song. See, I, I don't, don't care what I, anybody says. I, yeah, exactly. I don't really agree with the fact that um, Whamageddon exists because there's nothing I don't, wrong with Wham. No, I don't think you stop can not play, that stop, not, stop not playing Wham. What is wrong exactly, with you? Exactly. Exactly. I get love a bit of George, it. George Michael. Michael, yeah. Yeah, I think. Your life, life can only be better with a bit of George Michael in it. It can, can't it, yeah. Um, well, you are feeling very festive because as we started this podcast recording, I said, it. have you finished your breakfast? And you went, it's a very festive breakfast. I'm eating panettone. Chocolate panettone. <laughs> Don't do that, Alice. <laughs> Don't talk directly into... I mean, I know it's Christmas and we've been doing this a year. And like... <laughs> decided to scratch that because everybody who is disabled knows about Tiny Tim. It's like our mascot for Christmas. <laughs> and, and then Alice found an article by Roland which talked about the 12 days of disabled Christmas. So hello uh, Roland. Hello. Nice to, uh, nice to uh, meet you. Thank you very much for inviting me. <laughs> Merry Christmas. And it's too early to start. Yeah. It's the first of December yet. It is, it is dangerously close. The date of recording, though, is dangerously close to Christmas. Right. We're not like EastEnders recording our Christmas episode in, like, February. No, yeah, exactly. Um, Roland, before we start with the 12 days of Christmas, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Uh, so I am... Um... A, a post-60-year-old white gay male. 
and I became disabled 16 years ago. I was at the time working as a civil servant in Westminster, working for the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. And in 2004, I started to feel unwell. And gradually over the course of the following two years, I lost the use of my arms, my legs. I lost the ability to speak. I lost a lot of cognitive ability, lost a lot of memory. And I had a tendency to fall asleep at my desk in the foreign office, which employers tend to not really like very much. Don't know why. Uh, I saw lots of different consultants, lots of different specialists, had lots of different tests. Nobody could tell me what the problem was. Um, my partner, Richard, uh, and I lived together in southwest London, in Surrey. And on my regular commute home from Westminster to our home, I get on a train and end up, I didn't know where, and I'd phone Richard and say, I don't know where I am. And he'd say, get off the train, look at what it says on the platform, and I'll come and find you. I'm <laughs> That's love, that is. <laughs> isn't it? I know, bless him. Um, I'm <laughs> French, I was partially raised, educated in Paris, so Richard thought going off to Paris for a weekend would be a good thing. So off we tootled, and whilst we were there, I collapsed in the underground. And I don't remember any of this, but Richard tells me that he had to physically, literally carry me out of the underground, back to the hotel and home. And from that point onwards, he decided that he was going to come with me to all these specialist appointments because he was so concerned. I started to develop blinding, crippling, fleeting headaches. And Richard paid for me to go and see a private neurologist in Harley Street. More tests. Neurologist came back and said, What you've got is called pickaxe syndrome. As though somebody's in your head. Ooh. I know. Uh, and he said, That's very, that's very literal, isn't it? <laughs> it was a very appropriate description, actually. Yeah, yeah. I've never had a yeah. pickaxe stuck in my head, but if, if it did happen, I guess that's what it would feel like. <laughs> <laughs> And the neurologist said to me, uh, there's, there's nothing we can do about it. You'll just have to learn to live with it. And here are some antidepressants for you to take. Really helpful. Rich and I eventually ended up going to see a chest specialist at the local hospital. They, they thought they found something on my lungs. Turned out mm -hmm. to be chickenpox scars in the end, so nothing particularly serious. But this consultant, recognizing that we are a same-sex couple, had the genius stroke to ask me if I'd ever had a HIV test. And I hadn't. At that point, Richard and I had been together 10 years in a monogamous relationship. I'd only had one previous partner. So it had never occurred to me that I would mm -hmm. have an HIV test. I mean, you are both far too young to have been around when the icebergs and the tombstones floated across our TV screens and when that letter, that leaflet was pushed for every letterbox in the land. I was in my early 20s at that point. So I, I thought that I was fully informed and educated and knew all about it. But I said to the consultant, please test me, test me for anything, because I, I actually think I'm going mad. I really thought that yeah. in my own mind, it was I was making it all up. So I had the test done on Thursday, the 31st of August, 2006. And we were going to go on holiday on the following Saturday for two weeks. So I said to the consultant, I'll pick up the results when I come back. There's no rush. Following day, Friday, the 1st of September, I staggered into work to put on my out-of-office message. Richard, bless him, had just been made redundant. So he was at home packing. When I got home, there were no cases packed. And I said to Richard, well, 
we need to pack because we're going away tomorrow. Hello. And Richard put me in his arms and he started to cry. And I'd never seen him cry before. The consultant had phoned home to get my office number to call me to say if I went away for two weeks, I would come home in a cardboard box. Two weeks to live. And Richard somehow said to the consultant, no, I'll tell Roland when he comes home. So the man that I love, the man that loves me, is the person who told me I am HIV positive. I had AIDS. My AIDS defining illness was a brain disease, progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, which in my case had affected the cells at the base of the brain, the one that govern your motoring skills, hence my paralysis. Richard is the one that told me, you're going to die in two weeks. We spent that weekend planning my funeral. And it's a great privilege, in a way, to be able to do that. On the Monday morning together, we went to local sexual health clinic and they said to me, you are undoubtedly extremely unwell. We're going to start you on treatment straight away. And that will be difficult and it will be painful and you will need to adhere to the treatment. But if you do that, hopefully, we will save your life. However, HIV has affected your body. So your lifespan will be shortened. And by the way, we don't think that you'll ever be able to walk again. I was off work for five months, learning how to walk, learning how to talk, learning how to do both at the same time. And now I can most days, but it wasn't easy. Discovering the new me, learning the meaning of what it is to be a different person is not easy. Here in the UK, sexual health records are kept separate and confidential to all other medical records. So my employers, the foreign office, were only told about the brain disease and not about the HIV or AIDS. But on my first day back at work, I shared the full diagnosis with my immediate line manager, not not for pity or for sympathy, but for understanding and support. I was, my horizons had shifted. I had a broken heart for a compass. I didn't know where I was going, what I was doing, why I was there. And she provided me with that support, but she said that she felt that she needed to inform HR. So off she went. And almost immediately, HR sent me a little email, two lines long, saying, we forbid you to share that information with anybody else because we, your employers, cannot be held responsible for how people will react or respond to them. <clears throat> they gagged me. They stole my voice. That opportunity of support that I so desperately needed was taken away from me. And that sent me on a spiral of mental health decline. I felt so isolated, so alone, so unhappy. But some months later, Richard and I lived very close to the River Thames. Very early on a Saturday morning, I found myself sitting on the river bank with my feet in the water. No hope. Richard found me, brought me home. 
on the Monday morning back at work as people gather around the coffee point and share what they've been up to over the weekend, all I wanted to do was to say I tried to kill myself. I tried to kill myself. But I didn't. I couldn't. I was scared. And yet there was a part of me that thought, I am not going to live whatever is left of my life in the shadow of HIV and AIDS. I need to find my voice. I trained as an expert patient. I got coaching and I got counselling. And eventually I did stand up in a foreign office and said, I am Roland, a colleague living with HIV and AIDS, and there's nothing I can do about that. I'm happy to educate, I'm happy to inform, but I can't change. In the following World AIDS Day, which is the 1st of December every year, yeah. I organised for some external speakers to come in to talk about the global pandemic of HIV and AIDS, a topic which is of great importance to the Foreign Office. I put posters up around the buildings announcing the event, and on the posters it said that I was organising it, my contact details, as a colleague living with HIV and AIDS. Posters were defaced, graffitied. Some were slashed with a knife or a pen. Some were ripped off the wall and torn into shreds and then trodden on. And I was scared. Such a gut visceral reaction. And I was angry. I was organising this event to educate and inform people and this is the response and this is the reaction but all it did was to make my voice stronger. And I pushed. And I spoke. And I shouted. And I screamed. And my voice was heard and listened to. And eventually I was elected chair of the Disabled Staff Network Foreign Office appointing me as Diversity and Equality Officer. And in those positions, I was able to use my voice to enable other voices to be heard, to empower people whose voices had been silent for too long, who had never thought that their voice would be listened to. Finally, finally, were listened to. And together, we were able to change the culture of the Foreign Office to become one that now is much more disability confident, disability aware, disability friendly. Where people are valued and respected and listened to and heard and understood because of who they are, because of the values that they bring, because of the experiences that they bring, because of the voices that they bring. I left the Foreign Office in 2005 to set up my own training, consultancy and coaching business. And my aim in life is to enable people to find their voice, to have their voice listened to. In the last year, in January, I had a heart attack. In July, I had a stroke. It's been a great year. <laughs> and HIV is attacking my bones. I have HIV-induced osteoporosis. My spine is disintegrating. 
So I, at the moment, have two slit discs and I'm strapped up to a little tense machine to try and manage the pain from that. My days are numbered. I'm dying, but then we all are. But I've been so privileged. Three times I have been told, potentially, you're about to die. Still here. I think I've used up quite a few of my nine lives by now. But each time it gives me pause to reflect and value on what is important to me. What is important in my life. To make sure that I make use of every day. We live such pressurised, hectic lives that sometimes days pass and we don't realise that actually we now have fewer days left in front of us. None of us know when we're going to die. But to make sure that each day is memorable in some kind of way and not necessarily with some huge, grandiose gesture. The colour of a flower, the smile of a child, welcome of a stranger. Each night as I go to sleep, I try and think of something that will make this day memorable so that it won't be lost forever. And I think to myself, today, have I, have I laughed enough? Have I loved enough? Have I lived enough? My tomorrows are numbered. But I'm still here. And I'm very grateful to be here. And I'm very grateful to be with you. Wow, Roland. I think that is like, that's number one introduction <laughs> into the life, your life. That, what a story. Thank you so oh. much for sharing it with us. Thank you. All I can think is I didn't bring enough bells. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how we're gonna how we're gonna lift now, this now, back now. up. <laughs> Where's George Michael? <laughs> <laughs> this is, I mean, I, I I think it's it's apt really because Christmas is a very difficult and sad time for a lot of people, and so it's it's quite sort of fitting, I think, to hear your story, Roland, which is you know very sad and difficult, but also you know ends on a on a positive you know you are you are getting as much as you can and doing as much as you can with the days that you have absolutely at points during that that we put at points i don't think i've seen you cried that much no i uh, <laughs> I, I was biting my lip quite hard yeah. uh, but i was also cheering you on at points where i was like yes roland go on <laughs> like wow uh, we are so grateful that you said yes to joining us for this episode thank you so thank you very much um well, the reason why we've asked you to uh join this episode for our christmas episode um was because alice found an article of yours that was written uh back when was it alice can we remember I think it was 2017 we could have roland to be honest <laughs> <laughs> uh so when did you write this article roland i as alice said i think it was 2017 2018 yeah mm -hmm. that's about right yeah. I, I think when alice emailed you she cc'd me into the email and you i think the reply was i i i had to go right the way back to find what you're talking about <laughs> 
so um and it was about the 12 days of a disabled christmas wasn't it yeah which is very on brand for what we're talking about so we thought we'd get you on and run through your 12 days of a disabled christmas and have a bit of a have a bit of a laugh and a sort of joke about the disabled christmas (coughs) so shall we start at the top let us start at the top so let us start at the top on the first day of christmas think of father christmas this nice chap who struggles down your inaccessible chimney is actually the ultimate exploiter of short people he keeps short people patronizingly called his little helpers in freezing factory conditions at the north pole Although you may argue that Santa's little helpers are, in fact, elves, the Oxford English Dictionary does not agree. According to this authority on the English language, elves are of dwarfish form, meaning that they're modelled on people of short stature. Do you wish me to continue? No, that was was brilliant. You're putting us to shame, Roland. To You've got some <laughs> voice for this is brilliant as well, Roland. That's amazing. <laughs> um, if if uh, do you have any comments you want to make, Liz? No, not at the moment. Other no. other than you know, I do think whatever Santa has got that can make him squeeze into small spaces, I want some of it, please, because this chair takes up quite a lot of room, and sometimes I think if I could just squeeze down that gap, it'd be absolutely fine. <laughs> this one would be accessible. <laughs> Amazing. <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> On the second day of Christmas, it's Boxing Day. This day links with disability lies in the association with charity. The traditional celebration of Boxing Day includes giving money and other gifts to charitable institutions and needy people, known as the deserving poor in Victorian times, and those who went cap in hand. The largest group of those who went cap in hand were the handicapped. You will have learned through your history episodes that we have moved on from what was then the medical model of disability, where people who, which came about during the Industrial Revolution, where people who were not able to be productive working in a factory because of their disability were placed into institutions and so on and so forth. Fortunately, we've now largely moved on from that model, here in the UK at least, to what we call the social model of disability, which recognises that it is society which places barriers in the way of people with disabilities, which may prevent them from fully participating in life. And so it is now our responsibility as members of society to make sure that we minimise, mitigate or remove entirely those barriers to make life fully accessible. Absolutely. You know what I do on Boxing Day? What do you do on Boxing Day? I usually see the side of my family that I didn't see on Christmas Day and I eat leftovers and um, that's the law (laughs) and usually feel a bit sorry for myself because I'm a little bit hungover yeah and remember why I chose to spend Christmas with the other side of my family (laughs) and uh and and 
There's usually a lot of dogs. I... That's, that's my boxing day. And it's you... Most days of my life, to be honest, is, yeah. is dogs and feeling a bit sorry for myself. But... <laughs> it's just a more festive feeling. Yeah. Dog, yeah, I've just got one of them crowns on it. <laughs> no, it's turkey and chips for me on boxing day. That's what we do. What do you do, Roland, for your boxing day? Um... I'm... Don't tell me you go like cheese rolling or something like that. Or no, no I'm not going to tell you that. I, I'm an original <laughs> Christmas Grinch. I are you? Do not like Christmas. I have no family. <laughs> I have no family apart from Richard, uh, and Richard is from Barbados, and all his family are out in Barbados. So there's just the two of us, and usually Christmas is a day when we don't do anything. Basically, mm. we eat what we want to eat. For me, it's usually sausages and mash. Yeah. Uh, and for Richard, it's macaroni cheese because he's Barbadian. Um, <laughs> we don't do anything traditional. And every sort of third or fourth year, we put up a Christmas tree because it's the done thing. Um, yeah. But I do have a Christmas story, though. After I was diagnosed in, on the 1st of September, that following Christmas, Richard had to fly home to Barbados because, sadly, his brother-in-law had, had died of cancer. And we kind of knew that this was probably going to happen. And we had discussed it in advance, that obviously he needed to go out to support his sister and so on and so forth. And he, in the end, he flew out on the morning of Christmas Day. So my brother drove Richard and me to the airport to send him off. Non, nobody, my mother and brother were both still alive at that time, but we hadn't shared with them my diagnosis. They knew I was, clearly I was unwell, but they didn't know full diagnosis. And we had, Richard and I had decorated the house for Christmas just because we needed to do something Given what had happened recently, we needed to bring a little bit of life and soul into our lives. So we decorated the house, put up a, we've got a Victorian house with a huge bay window that I'm sat in at the moment. So we have put up an eight foot Christmas tree. Amazing. Nice. We real were, or fake? Sorry? Real or fake? Not that it matters. Real, real. Real one. Real, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We were due to have some building work done in the house first week of January, new floors being laid and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so Richard had moved out of the, the first floor where the new floors were being laid. He moved out all the furniture and everything before he left, but he hadn't been able to do anything with the Christmas tree. And he said to me, you'll have to sort that before the builders come back. Okay. At this point, I was having difficulties walking, difficulties balancing. I could barely get up and down stairs, never mind climb up an eight-foot Christmas tree to take off all the decorations and the lights and everything. And so I, I phoned Richard one evening and I said to him, look, I, I, I just have to cancel the builders. I can't, I just can't do the Christmas tree. And he said, no, you've got to move the Christmas tree because <laughs> you don't have them in, then it'll be months and then... Okay. I had bought for Richard, he loves after eight mints. I can take them all leave now. I bought for Richard a big bag of if after eight mints for Christmas, which of course he hadn't had the opportunity to eat. So I ate all of them. 
I'm nice. <laughs> Even though you don't like them. Even I forced myself to eat them. And on a chocolate high, I think <laughs> the only way to de- undecorate the Christmas tree was to pull it over onto the yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, did you get st- Please tell me you didn't get stuck underneath it. I didn't get stuck underneath it. <laughs> I got visions of you like, right there. <laughs> But you can imagine, Christmas tree came crashing down, lights, decorations everywhere. So I managed to remove all the broken lights, decorations, dump them in the shower. Richard sought out when he came home. <laughs> and fortunately, when the builder turned up, he was able to cut out the Christmas tree and, and cut it off. But I was able to say to Rick, phone Richard and say, I took the Christmas tree down. <laughs> He's never asked you to do it again, has he? This is one of the things you learn in a relationship that you do not, or you do really badly, the things that you don't want to do in your partner. I'll have to do that. (laughs) I'll do it. (laughs) Blimey. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Right. What number are we on now? Three? I think three. So, on the third day of Christmas, think about... Tiny Tim in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. He's the character from Christmas literature that disabled people love to hate. Sentimentalized <laughs> with a crutch and iron frame supporting his limbs, Tiny Tim has been described as proof of Victorian emotional excess and the model for all the poster children of our time. He is also said to be the cripple who accepts his suffering and is sweetly grateful for the charity of the non-disabled. No disabled person should have to accept their suffering. It's, um, I, I think that there's, that's exactly why we decided not to do Tiny Tim, is that it is just a bit, it's just a bit on the nose, Tiny isn't Tim, it? Tiny Tim was a June decision that was made hastily to fill out the schedule. <laughs> but, uh, no, I think I think the best version of well, I think the best version of a Christmas Carol, uh, and this is not up for debate, is a Muppets Christmas Carol. Yes, of course. Michael course. Caine is the best Scrooge I've ever seen. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Are you saying that I'm the replacement for Tiny Tim? Is that what? Is that what? <laughs> you are. You are the preferred option. <laughs> we decided to to go for something that was a little uh, less Christmas cliche and Christmas cringe, and a bit more, uh, yeah, a bit more considered. A bit yes. more considered. Yeah. What do we actually know? What was wrong with Tiny Tim, or was he just known as a sick? rickets or something or i was gonna say it was something like that or polio or you know what one of the old-fashioned uh illnesses <laughs> old the old-fashioned fashioned. ones <laughs> <laughs> Stuff, no, no. <laughs> no i don't i don't actually know whether we know what's wrong whether it was ever mentioned what was wrong with just a poor little cripple essentially isn't it mm. because the heating's not been put on or something because <laughs> Neither won't pay the bill or whatever. But it is again relating back to the history of disability. Dickens was writing at a time when Mm. we had the charitable model of disability. The charitable model of disability said that the the disabled poor were deserving of pity, deserving Mm. of charity, and these are examples of they are examples of his time and 
whilst now with our current thinking, we may look at it and think that's hugely inappropriate. That's how it was when he was writing. Which I, I mean, my sort of thoughts are if I like if Jeff Bezos decided that he wanted to give Turkey to every single one of his, uh, you know, underpaid, overworked uh, warehouse members, yeah, yeah, yeah. delivery yeah. drivers, then I would see that as, uh, you know, that that's that's very much within the, the Christmas spirit. I think it's the it's because he's disabled uh, issue with it really is, you know, let's be inclusive here. Let's take pity on everybody and give them all free stuff. It's Pudsy Bear all over again, really, isn't it? But that's for another episode. <laughs> um, well, yeah. But whilst I absolutely agree with your sentiment, you shouldn't give a turkey to a vegetarian or a vegan. <laughs> no, no, shouldn't. that's true. Although uh, this year, because I am vegetarian slash vegan-ish, uh, I was very excited to see that um, a popular high street coffee chain um are doing like a vegan turkey sandwich as part of their christmas uh food uh, i've got that excited. and also greg's if greg's wants to sponsor our podcast we uh i will 100 sign that deal um i but... had a, a vegan festive bake just <laughs> yesterday now Thanks aren't they much. nice aren't they nice it's a little bit mushroomy for me uh, okay well you're, I don't you're really having, like I'm, see, I'm i'm eating the proper one so oh yeah mm-hmm. But it's probably but I, not I, as much roomy. I don't, anyway, I don't know. We digress. Poor Roland. <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? This is this is a regular episode for us, right? I can, I can about this food. is a theme of food here. I mean, we started off with Panettone and we've gradually <laughs> we've slid southwards, so you know. <laughs> yeah, we're going downhill fast. Hold on, hold on. It's been it's been ages. Let me ring my bell. <laughs> Christmas! <laughs> Thank you. We can carry on now. Thank you. <laughs> we'll be back after the short break. Great. <laughs> anyway, Roland, I do apologise. Please carry on. No need to apologise. So I'll do the fourth day for you. Yes, please. <laughs> which is about Charles Dickens. So on the fourth day of Christmas, think of Charles Dickens. Here was a man who unashamedly used disability as a literary device wherever and whenever he could, and often at Christmas. As if Tiny Tim wasn't bad enough, there's also Bertha, the little blind daughter of toy maker Caleb Plummer in The Cricket on the Hearth. She is tricked into believing the life of poverty that the two share is in fact one of wealth and ease. It is a tale of deceit that patronises blind people and is modelled almost entirely on the medical model of disability rather than the social model. I have as a as a blind person that is definitely like hits a weird sort of secret fear that people are going to play tricks on me and I'm not going to know. I went to school with this girl who thought it was hilarious because I've got no peripheral vision to just reach out from beside me and boot me on the nose. Ah. What, what, I hope, what? I hope you biffed her. <laughs> your finger rolling i don't know about biffing i'd have bitten her <laughs> it, it again would she well yeah i mean it's unfortunately she she got the advantage because i couldn't see it happening until it was too late well who does that though 
ignorant people. Like, well, yeah, ignorant no, people. Yeah, no, <laughs> asking that question, I know the answer. But it's like people that purposely go boo and make me because I've, I've got cerebral palsy and a subtle reflex that has never ever left. Uh, and some people think it is hilarious to go and make me jump. And when I jump, I go into spasm. So I end up swearing at them and then hitting them because the spasm has made my arm go like... like at least that's what she tells them yeah, as she punches yeah. them. She's like, I can't help it. It's an involuntary spasm. Whoops, Daisy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's nice mean. Uh, yeah, but no, Charles Dickens, he did love her. He, he does love her. A disabled character, doesn't he? And a, a sad disabled character. Yeah, I don't they've think... got to be sad. They can't be like living their best lives. I was going to say, I don't think he'd like us very much. No. Well, it would <laughs> just upset his equilibrium, wouldn't it, really? Hmm. It's, it's interesting because obviously nobody's still alive, I don't think, who lived in Victorian times. But we have this sort of, particularly at Christmas, we have this vision of the lovely Victorian Christmas where people are gathered and nicely dressed around a Christmas tree under the gently falling sleigh, singing beautifully harmonised Christmas carols. But the reality of life was nothing like that. The reality of life in Victorian times was huge levels of poverty, which is why so many disabled people were forced to go out onto the street and beg, using their caps and so on and so forth. And to a degree, Dickens was able to write about those realities of Victorian life, and a lot of it was around disability. Um, so we need to have a more realistic view of yeah. history and not always just paint it in a rosy picture of everybody enjoying yeah. Christmas. And we still yeah. have that societal pressure to be yes. seen to be enjoying christmas oh absolutely mm. absolutely like like if you i don't know roland you just told us that you're not really that into christmas you don't no. it's not you don't but i suppose do when you tell people that how many people go oh don't be so miserable or yeah. oh really or they're they're shocked and appalled that you can't possibly want a christmas tree like not want a christmas tree or you know at the end of the day, you know, people people who, when they say to me, oh, I don't really like Christmas that much. I mean, I, recently, uh, my nana died three years ago on uh, New Year's Day. So she was very, very poorly over Christmas. And since then, she's a, she, my nana was a big part of our family. Don't cry, Lucy. Um, and she's like, she was like, you know, she, she she was always the one feeding me olives every year and going, do you like an olive yet? And I'm like, no, <laughs> try it, try it. I do now. My nan would be very pleased to know that I now eat olives. Um, but she would do that every Christmas. And it's silly things like that. So every year now Christmas is always tinged with that little bit of sadness. I still maintain that she died on New Year's Day on purpose so that we would never forget. <laughs> because <laughs> um, it's the kind of thing she would do my nana but um yeah so it is you know whilst i still enjoy christmas it's, christmas will never now be the same again mm. because my nana's not here who i love dearly you know so um yeah it's, so i always say to people who who struggle with christmas it's just a day at the end of the day like Absolutely. it's a week a week at most two at a, a huge push um, and if you think of it like that, it really doesn't matter, does it? 
it's so long as you can feel a bit more relaxed because you're not at work and please yourself you know watch a good film on the telly it's not it's you know that that's as much as a rest as you need isn't it really yeah, absolutely i i yeah. i very much feel that everybody needs to make their own christmas yeah. and for those people who do want to be hugely sociable, decorate the house, put all of those lights up in the garden, ramp up their electricity bill, that's fine. <laughs> that's their choice and their decision. Yeah. But my choice and my decision is different. Mm. And we need to respect and understand each other's point of view. I do feel sorry for those people who feel pressurized into putting mm. up that facade of, joyfulness and bonhomie and so on and so forth. I feel really sorry for people who feel pressurized into spending too much money that they can't afford on gifts that people don't really want. Yeah. You'll end up in landfill in a couple of weeks' yeah. time. Yeah. Why exactly. Yeah. No, it's, it's yeah. ridiculous. We, we've told people in our family that you know if you want to give us give us cash or make a charity donation because yeah. you know i i can always spend money on coffee and getting my nails done <laughs> which are the things that i like to or buying books that you know audio books that i can listen to otherwise i don't i don't need anything i no. don't spend my money on anything no. um you know so it's i i don't i really don't need more this is, this is a public service announcement, listeners. Don't get yourself into debt this Christmas. It's not worth it, really. It's really not. It's not Absolutely. worth it. Talking of audiobooks, am I allowed to do a little plug for my book? Is that to me? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so I wrote a book called Ripples from the Edge of Life that was published in 2018. And the audio version has just been released on Audible. The book, the book is the story of my diagnosis, but not only me, uh, because I now do a lot of voluntary work in the HIV and AIDS sector. I'm a speaker. I'm one of the panel of positive voices speakers for Town Singing's Trust. So we go out and speak to schools, workplaces, anybody that will invite us, basically, to talk about our experiences of living with HIV. And so having done the work in, in that sector, heard these stories, I realized that my story based by no means unique or special in any kind of way. So it's not only my story, but I reached out to the HIV community and 14 other wonderful people also shared their, the stories of their diagnoses in the book. And they are arranged in chronological order from Morris, who was diagnosed in 1981, up to Simon, who was diagnosed in 2015. And whilst the experiences of diagnosis have changed as treatment has improved over the years, the consistent theme throughout all of those stories is one of stigma. And the way mm. that people around the people who have been diagnosed have responded and reacted to that diagnosis. And sadly, mm. that situation hasn't really improved that much. No. Yeah. Please tell me, please tell me, Roland, that you are you have recorded the the audio. I was going to say, please, yeah. Did you read it? <laughs> I didn't. Got... I made the deliberate. Oh. Oh. Sorry to disappoint. <laughs> I made. The you've just you've got a lovely speech. You know, you're delivering what you're telling us really beautifully. So I I feel like it would have been really good. 
unlike us who are like <laughs> effing and jeffing and eating panettone i made the deliberate choice to not read it because i i know the 14 other people who shared their stories mm. and i didn't right. want as i was reading their stories i didn't want to try and imitate their voices no, mm -hmm. i felt that would have been disrespectful yeah. So I auditioned various people and got a brilliant Alan Turton, who is the chap who narrates it, has done a yeah. fantastic job. Fabulous. So Fabulous. if you want to get a copy of the audiobook, or if you want to get hold of a copy of the hardback or the e the e book, um, mm -hmm. available on, on Amazon or from my website www.ripplesfromtheedge.com. Roland, we're going to put all those links in the episode um, description so that people can click on it and link through. And we'll also put the episode, much. guys, because these episodes get transcribed as standard, so we can put all them all right. the bits and pieces in. Last minute Christmas present, guys, if you, you need. Yeah, can't exactly. think of anything. Quick. The <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as, as I think I mentioned, yeah. World AIDS Day. So yeah. you, something that um, obviously is very important, very dear to me. It's not only a celebration of those people who are still alive, still living with mm. HIV and AIDS, but also a reminder of those people that we have lost. 70 million people were, have been diagnosed globally with HIV and or AIDS. Only 50% of those people still survive. Mm. And I think it I'm not diminishing in any kind of way what we have all been, still are going through these last 18 months, two years with, with COVID. But bear in mind that globally so far, about 5 million people have, have died from COVID compared to the 35 mm. million that have died from HIV and AIDS. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, that's great, Roland. We're going to uh, link everything that you just talked about in, into the to do with the episode, so people can find that quite. Thank easily. you very much. Would you like day five? We're only on day five. We've got another seven to go, ladies. Christmas bell time. Okay. Lift the mood. Let's go. <laughs> on the fifth day of Christmas, think of how many places are accessible to disabled people. You can find a list of the top five accessible festive days out if you do a, a search on the internet. But they are limited in number. There should be more places that are easy for disabled people to visit at any time of the year. I, I hate Christmas markets. Not because I don't love the idea of drinking hot wine and wandering around looking at crap I don't need, um, <laughs> but because they're so busy and they're so inaccessible and people don't like it. Like, I have to touch everything. I have to fondle everything because I can't sort of understand it with my eyes. Yeah. So whenever I go shopping, I'm constantly touching things. And people, particularly on stalls, just don't seem to like it when you're just fingers all over their stuff, especially if it's like baked goods. That I can kind of understand. Sorry, but... I've got, I'm very, being very childish and giggling quite a lot, and you're making a very serious <laughs> They just don't like my, me fondling my fingers all over everything. Quite funny. Sorry. 
there is there is something there though about hidden disabilities so people yeah, wouldn't absolutely. necessarily know alice that that you have got a visual impairment i found as i said earlier on i had a stroke in july fortunately it was only a, a minor stroke and the only thing that um i was left with was a, a problems with balance when walking so i bought myself a very fancy walking stick one of these ones that folds up with an elastic so all you need to do is go yeah. snap and it goes and yeah. 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 it makes you feel like a superhero it with does. some kind of fancy weapon doesn't it yeah my cane does that but what i noticed was a completely different attitude towards me when i was walking with a walking stick people mm -hmm. would look differently at me than I would, perhaps I became more aware of it, more sensitive to it, I don't know. But people would give me a wider berth because I'm walking with a walking stick. People were more uh, friendly in offering me assistance. If I go into a cafe and there were no seats available, somebody would inevitably, invariably stand up and offer me a seat. Mm -hmm. And I found that really, I can understand why, because people can see it. But as you and I know, 80% of people living with a disability have an invisible disability. And my feeling is that we should actually treat everybody as though they did have a disability until we know differently. Yeah, I completely agree with that, Roland. And I'm, all, I'm always saying that if people show a bit of empathy, the world will be a nicer place. And I think if you start with treat everybody like they're going to have some additional need and then go from there. And if yeah. they don't, then they don't. But if they do, then you're ready for it, aren't you? I think I think that is the way we need to start looking at things. But And certainly at the start of the pandemic, I, although it was a difficult time and I was on the sheltering vulnerable list, so I was completely cut off at home. Richard would go out and do the shopping once a week and I'd stand him in the garden and hose him down when he came back. Didn't really like it, that had to be done. <laughs> I, I saw stuff happening that I was really hopeful about, people coming together. Yeah, to me too, absolutely. And I thought, this, this hopefully will be the new normal. We will learn from this and benefit from this. Sadly, okay. memory, human memory is very short and we resort to our primary instinct of self-survival, which in many cases means greed. And we've kind of, that has all kind of faded into the background, which is yeah. sad. Very sad, very sad. I too, like you, was hopeful for about a period of four, three, four weeks. I was like, oh, this is this is good. This is this. Everybody is seeing the benefits of this. And I think I said to you, Alice, but I, I, I think after about week five, I was like, this isn't going to stick. People are going to want to like go and stand in the office with Greg from accounts, you know, and breathe all over him. <laughs> <laughs> like um you know you just know that it's not it's not happening is it really which is sad very sad i think some things have changed i think certainly obviously because i'm self-employed I'm, I'm not always based in an office and i haven't delivered any training in an office i've only done one face-to-face -face training delivery over the past 18 months all the rest has been online but there are organizations my partner um started this week 
to with great reluctance to go back into his office one day a week. They'd been told they have to go back to the office. And I think that employers and organizations need to treat this with great caution. There will be people with potentially hidden disabilities who haven't shared that information with their employers who may have great concerns about going back into the office, who may have felt much safer working from home, but now they're being told they have to go back and work in an office. On the other hand, of course, we know that there are many people who have experienced poor mental ill health as a result of being isolated, as a result of having to work remotely, who will benefit enormously from being back in the office and being surrounded yeah. by people. But employers need to be aware and open to the fact that there will be different degrees of excitement, anticipation, or reluctance about mm. being back in the office space. Absolutely, Roland. Right, uh... Which number are Shall we? I get my bell? Get, get them, get them, get them. <laughs> <laughs> Alice, you're getting louder and louder. You need to calm down. Put the panettone down. The panettone is long gone. <laughs> so, on the sixth, sixth. day of Christmas, sixth. think of Victoriana, as we have been saying. The Victorians loved the festive season and also had a fascination with disability, presented as seasonal entertainment. One of the most celebrated of these entertainers was, and we've mentioned him before, Tom Thumb, a short person brought over to the UK by circus impresario P.T. Barnum for the sole purpose of amusing Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. Have you seen The Greatest Showman, the film The Greatest Showman? I have, yes. It's a, it's a fantastic film. It is. But were you aware that the actor who plays Tom Thumb is actually a, a short person in reality, but they had to electronically engineer his voice so that his voice would appear to be more the voice that would come from a short person? Which or was, um, rather a voice that we expect to come yeah. from a person of... More Thank you, Alice. Yeah. You're all right. Yeah. Uh, Alice is far better at wording things that come out of my mouth as well, Roland. I wouldn't worry about it. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I did. I did. I didn't know that. That really? Yeah. So his really? voice is like a is like a like a normal. I don't hate the word normal. Like an average voice. Yeah. His voice. Yeah. Average. I, I, um, Talking yeah. of normal, something else to share with you. Uh, as a result of the brain disease, I was diagnosed whilst working in the Foreign Office with dyspraxia. And I was very lucky to be diagnosed as an adult because we all know that it's really mm. difficult as an adult to get a diagnosis of any kind of neurodiverse condition. But the Foreign Office wrote off to my lovely HIV consultant to ask if the dyspraxia was as a result of the brain disease. And my consultant wrote back, copied me in. And in her letter, she put, yes, the dyspraxia is undoubtedly as a result of the brain disease. And Roland will never be normal again. Oh, stop it. Do, like, oh, 
Never Nicole, been that was again. wonderful. That's the biggest well, compliment anybody has ever paid. <laughs> <laughs> normal. Yeah. Normal is boring. Normal is the setting on a washing machine. <laughs> I ain't no washing machine. My aim in life is to no. never, ever, ever be normal. Normal is boring. Whilst we are sharing these stories, uh, when I was learning to drive, I, don't, I, have, I didn't pass my test. I was terrible at learning to drive. I was dri learning to drive for six years and had two car accidents to get up because I just thought, I can't do this. This is ridiculous. And anyway, the most important people are driven, aren't they, really? That as far my, as I'm my husband's mum says that. She says, some people drive, some people are made to be driven. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, um, I, so I was learning to drive and I was also um i went i was an extra on the films uh, on a television set for just become a sitcom all about me which was about a mixed racial family so half of the family were indian and there was Jasper Carrot and his side of his family. And they'd come together, they got married, and I was I was going to be an extra in this television programme. The BBC wrote to my GP, as did the DVLA, <laughs> to see. There were two completely different exercises, but they, they both wrote to the doctor to say, you know, what is her mental competence to be on A, be on a film set, and B, learn to drive. And my doctor wrote back, and I quote, Lucy will be absolutely fine on the film set. Uh, her, her, she's a very bright girl, all this business, and her, her intelligence is above average. <laughs> which I am taking as, I am a genius, thank you very much. I'm going to have that printed on a t-shirt. And it, my, my, my mom said, he's not said that, I said, he near as damn it did. So, <laughs> we'll take that, thank you. Yeah. My motto is like, is, you know this saying that we learn by mistakes? Yeah. That's why I'm a genius. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. So, uh, yes, I, I, I take whatever people say as, you know, whatever doctors say, say I have a positive spin on it. I, I like your T-shirt idea, Lucy. Near as damn it a genius. <laughs> Near as damn it a genius, yes. Yeah. So it's it's like what's it's Mensa, but it's uh N D A G. <laughs> yeah. Ne nearly near as damn it, yeah. 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 No, great. Uh, okay, Roland, continue. On the seventh day of Christmas, think mistletoe. You probably think that this winter plant is mere is merely a historic fertility rite, something under which you kiss. Mistletoe is in fact part of Nordic negativity about blind people. According to Norse mythology, the blind god Hoda was tricked into firing a mistletoe-tipped arrow, thus killing his sighted brother, Balder. Should we boycott mistletoe this Christmas and show solidarity with Hoda? And, obviously, given Covid, no <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. Would you like to hear my horrible blind person mistletoe story? Oh no, here we go. Yes, please. This is a good stuff. <laughs> this is a good stuff. Go on. When I was seventeen, there was a there was a boy, <laughs> and I liked him 
so much and he had absolutely no idea who I was despite sitting opposite me in English literature for two years (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I told my friend who did not go to the same school as me um, about this boy and there was a sixth form Christmas in like Christmas party thing and this I I don't I do not looking back I do not know how this was orchestrated it was this really grimy dodgy bar in our local town centre where they'd obviously decided we were close enough to 18 so they'd let us all in and they wouldn't wouldn't worry too much about checking IDs because we bought tickets before we got there right okay and uh and I'd gone out and I'd bought this really nice um this really nice skirt, which I really regret that I don't fit into anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and I bought an extra ticket because uh, my friends from college, uh, including Adam, hi Adam, were not really interested in being popular and friends with everybody else from college. So they didn't want to go to the stupid, like, party that Christmas all the popular... Do. Yeah, that right, all, the, yeah. all the popular kids were going to and I was like oh but the boy is going to be there so I'm gonna I'm gonna make all this effort and go and see the boy and uh I got there I had been drinking beforehand because I was 17 oh, well, there and I we was go. Like, right well um, there we go there's the opener I had been drinking beforehand <laughs> this is like Roland eating too many uh, <laughs> 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 feeling overconfident <laughs> and so had my friend emma who i didn't who didn't go to college with us and so we got there and yeah. uh i and she said which one's the boy and i was like i mean it's oh, dark God. in it so oh, i can't God. i can't point him out to you can i but i described him and i told him i told emma what his name was and she she probably went up to likely gentleman and went are you such and such and uh when she eventually found him she then fetched me over and was like here and just held up some mistletoe but i was drunk and and oh god telling this story i could feel myself <laughs> curling Swe- up into a ball sweaty, of <laughs> sweaty palms oh yes yeah. uh, and she held up this thing of mistletoe for me to kiss him and she went you have to kiss him now and I was like why because it was dark so I couldn't see and she was like mistletoe and I was like can you hold his head so I can see and put a torch over his head over his face so I can see where I've got to like land my lip (laughs) you I mean you say that but and this is the bit that makes me want to curl up in a corner and die okay I did miss oh no (laughs) (laughs) and just like just drunk wet mouth on his face <laughs> oh god yeah oh so, god so that's uh, it that's not the beginning of my fairy tale romance now you see nobody ever looks at me twice so i never have anything any, like, and i i never know when anybody is flirting with me or likes me anyway so i just don't bother because like, i'm clueless um but i can always remember like at school at school like christmas parties somebody would inevitably want to play spin the bottle and i would just sit there thinking please please don't please don't please don't please don't please don't spin it in my direction because everybody who and there was one <laughs> there was one boy in particular who 
like was besotted with me and bless him he was a lovely guy but i just didn't feel the same uh and i, I just knew that he would purposely try and park himself opposite me because he knew that if the bottle landed on me then obviously and i was like please i, I it was just panic inducing for 45 minutes sitting there thinking oh god no can i go to the toilet and just sit in there for, for the rest of the party please awful awful the one good thing about covid is that you know there is a whole generation of 14 year olds who haven't had to go through the hideousness that is spin the bottle yeah no i mean it's awful isn't it really but there we go so there we go talking of which uh, as i said i'm one of the uh, panel of positive voices speakers for terence Higgins trust so we go into schools and other places to talk about hiv as you may be aware um in i think 2018 or 2019 the, the government passed legislation to say that schools need to include sex education on the curriculum for children mm. from a certain age upwards which hadn't been on the curriculum before then so uh, i've been doing this going into schools talking about sexual health for at least 10 years i suppose now and I haven't seen any particular increase in the level of knowledge that is demonstrated by the, the pupils that we're talking to in terms of the questions they are asking. And sometimes they ask perfectly appropriate questions given the, what we're talking about, but sometimes yeah. they just make me think, surely somebody should have spoken to you your parents for yeah. example yeah yeah and so often when we go into schools even though it's a mandated part of the curriculum you find that they have to find a volunteer teacher to talk about it and nobody's volunteered so it's the teacher that drew the shortest straw who doesn't really want to do it because they're a bit embarrassed and they don't have that amount of information so what they are sharing with the children is that degree of embarrassment about talking about sex sex is yeah. an important part of life absolutely if i was a teacher i'd want to be like yeah i'm the cool teacher that you can that talks about really normal stuff like sex like that's well, I, I wouldn't be embarrassed i'd be like yeah when i was at school right we had sex education lessons from about the age of what 13 12 13 something like that and when we got to like senior end, so a bit bit further on, uh, we had sex education lessons. And my sex education teacher, who also doubled up as a math teacher, one plus one equals baby. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Uh, she didn't know. She did not know what oral sex was, and we had to tell we, the the pupils had to tell her. She thought oral sex was talking about it and that is not a, that's not a joke honestly she didn't know and i'm like we are we are going to hell in a handcart at this rate aren't we really to be fair yeah, i mean don't get me wrong that we well i have certainly come across some absolute gens of teacher who teachers who are really yeah. on the ball but it's also the parents we mm. last year we went to give two talks at a i'm not going to name the school but it's a private school in london uh, and the talks were two weeks apart. Uh, and it was a private school for girls. 
So we went and gave off the first talk to a group of girls who were extremely well behaved, asked intelligent questions and so on and so forth. When we went back the second time, two weeks later, same teacher organizing it. And we said to her, you know, was there any feedback from, and she said she was inundated with abusive emails from parents. So the girls had gone home and said, let somebody talk about HIV. And the parents emailed the teacher, emailed the school, say, how dare you expose our beloved child to somebody talking about HIV? I just, I just don't understand. How can you expect your child to be aware enough to, to protect themselves from, you know, contracted diseases yeah. like H like how can how you know th those kids are going to be the sorts of kids who are now running around thinking that you know you can catch herpes from using somebody's toilet or something it's gonna yeah. be that sort of nonsense and you just it's why on earth would you not want to educate your children like all right, I understand sometimes, you know, children might learn things earlier than is perhaps age appropriate, but I would rather manage the outcome of that than have to manage the experience of my child who has their first sexual contact and ends up with HIV. Well, we, we are only allowed to talk to pupils from a certain age upwards. And our talks are all carefully constructed, carefully vetted, carefully monitored to make sure that we are not seen to be encouraging young people to engage in sexual activity. As you rightly said, we talk in order to educate and inform and ensure that these children will have a healthy sex life as and when they choose and decide to engage in it. And it's ridiculous because there have been so many studies that have been done that show that things like, you know, preaching abstinence rather than educating people about contraception has shown that it's one of those Southern American states where, um, you know, probably Texas where you now can't get an abortion. Uh, probably Texas where you can marry a horse. <laughs> uh the where they it's young girls who are being um you know who aren't being educated about um contraception and, and the risks of sexually transmitted diseases are but instead of being uh, preaching abstinence are, are starting anal sex and oral sex at like 13 because it doesn't count no and they're still leaving themselves open to catching all the only disease you don't catch from anal sex is babies so you know it's just just yeah and then, and then on the, and then on the, relating it back but go, if we go back to the whole disability issue you have you have people who they look at somebody who is disabled and think oh they well they can't possibly have a have an active sex life you know, even people who potential date, you know, you, you go on online dating and you disclose you've got a disability, you build up the court, you either, you either put it on your profile straight off the bat uh, and you get all sorts of questions like how, how is it, how is it possible? Because they think it's some sort of weird, you know, we have to get into all sorts of weird positions. Or if you don't put it on your profile and you build up the courage to, 
you get the same thing. It's just a delayed reaction of because they think, oh, that it's like this macabre kind of curiosity of, oh, I wonder how that works. Well, it, you know, it works it works exactly the same as everybody else. You are, you know? I'm sure, aware that we are in the middle of the UK disability history yep. month, and the, the two themes this year are sex and relationships and hidden disabilities. So how appropriate. I, I went to, to give a, a, a talk, sexual health talk, to a Catholic school a couple of years ago. Oh, God. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> in the reception area of the Catholic school was a big picture of an AIDS orphanage somewhere in Africa that the, the school supported. So, oh, this is a really good start. And as I was taken into the, the room that I was giving the talk, the teacher drew me to one side and said, of course, you mustn't mention the C word. Which C word? I was going to say, there, there, I mean, even I won't say the C word on, on, but I think we may be talking about different, different, uh, different C words. Well, the C, the, the C word words that I was not allowed to use were contraception and condoms. Oh, unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. But true. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've I know. got another C word for you. Go on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I do it again. Ready? 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 At surprise. Yeah. I've got another C word for you. <gasps> what? what? <laughs> oh, Roland, can we carry on so we can calm it down? Okay. On the eighth day of Christmas, let's hear it for Lepelordi. Staying on the theme of Norse myths, Iceland has its very own Christmas Santa story that incorporates a disabled character. He is the disabled troll, Lepelordi, who is unable to leave his bed. His wife, Gryla, steals naughty children to provide food for herself and Lepelordi. When naughty children be <laughs> That, I mean... That is that. I wow. know that. <laughs> <laughs> that um, is, yeah. I know what's going to make you feel better. I'll go. I'll go and find you some small child to chomp on. <laughs> Delicious. Yeah. Delicious. I mean, I think. I think if, as a child, if my parents had said to me, "If you're not, you know," as a child, they did say to me, "If you're not good this year, Santa won't come." If they said to me, "If you're not good this year, we'll feed you to a troll." <laughs> I'd be good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd sit down, shut up, and get on with whatever we were told to do. Exactly. Amazing. On the ninth day of Christmas, we're nearly there, folks. On the ninth day of Christmas, think <laughs> Christmas entertainment. Panto time is great. Oh, no, it isn't. How many pantomime? Oh, yes, it is. Oh, no, it isn't. How many pantomime productions are disability friendly? Thankfully, an increasing number of production companies are recognizing the need for relaxed performances, sign interpretive performances, audio described performances. Oh, yes, they do. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's very, I think those, those things are really cool. I think it's definitely one of those things that we're seeing in London, in the South, it's perhaps not made its way up to the the bigger cities yet, and um, certainly like into it's not way, made its way up to the northern the north yet, or into smaller. I um, am on the access panel for Birmingham Hippodrome, 
in Birmingham, obviously. Uh, and they do so much. They do touch tours, audio descriptions. The touch tours, you can actually go behind the scenes and touch all the costumes and the props and things before the show starts so that you you know what what you're looking at. They do... Um, See, that's what all... I need for Christmas markets. People need to there let me put my fingers all over all their pies before they... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I can get one of the Birmingham Hippodrome lot to come with you as you go to the <laughs> Christmas market in Birmingham. Um, but yeah, they do so much stuff. Um, they've got disabled seating areas where you can actually sit in your wheelchair and they've got a screen so that when everybody stands up at the end of a performance, as they always do, and starts clapping and cheering, instead of just seeing a bum in front of your face or whatever, um, you you can actually see what's still, what's happening on the stage because the camera oh, is above cool. everyone's head. Yeah, so I'm very proud to be part of the access panel for Birmingham Hippodrome. They do a great job. So, although I have to say, it depends on the attractiveness of the bum that's in front of you. Well, yes, there is that. But no, I am very proud to be part of the Birmingham Hippodrome. They do a great job. And their pantomimes are always very well. They do relaxed performances of the pantos as well. So um, they are really trying to to take on board, you know, a, a lot of disabilities, not just wheelchairs, which is great. I'm about to engage with a national ballet company about how they can make their performances more disability friendly. Mm -hmm. And... It's it's not easy because ballet no. is very visual, um, and yes, we can make them audio interpreted and so on and so forth. But there's a lot of the ballet that you won't be able to gain through just having audio no. interpretation. So it's something that we are engaged on at the moment, and I'm really glad that they are engaged on it. Mm. It just makes sense, doesn't it, really, I think, for everybody to, to at least consider it. Um, and whilst they say, you know, we might not be perfect, we'll give it a good go. Yeah. Um, and that's why the access panel exists for Birmingham Hippodrome, so that we can go back and say, well, actually, have you thought about it like this? Because that's not going to work. Yeah. So they're actually engaging with disabled people rather than telling us what's best mm. for us, yeah. which is the way forward, really. Yeah. Would you like the 10th day of Christmas? I would like the 10th day of Christmas, yes. So, on the 10th day of Christmas, think Saturnalia. The Romans had their own seasonal entertainment based on Saturn, their god of agriculture. However, contrary to popular myth, Saturnalia isn't so much an occasion for honouring Saturn, but rather to defy him and his forces of limitation, including disability. Defy your disability? Is this the sort of positive message we should be sending out to disabled people? Yes, we should. But that's, that's just a label podcast all over, isn't it, really? We don't like labels. That's brilliant. I love that. Mm. I think 10 is my favourite so far. We've still got two more to go, so, you know. I know. <laughs> shall I move rapidly on, then, to the 11th yes. day of Christmas? On the 11th day of Christmas, think carols. Although Christmas carols are part of the festive season, the singing of these seasonal ditties shouldn't be thought of as excluding deaf or hearing impaired people. There are several all deaf or sign assisted choirs in the UK. Ding dong, merrily on high. And mind those harmonies. <laughs> <laughs> and that now would be the, the time for us to, uh, to 
put on the wham because that is that is yeah. my my i know it's not a carol but that is my i can i can actually i can do i can sign um and i did learn shaking stevens merry christmas everyone don't ask me to do it because i've forgotten it but i can if i sit down and concentrate i can i, I can sign you'll have to uh have a have a think uh sort of have a go and we'll we'll record a video of you signing it and i'll I sing knew it would, i knew and you were going to say that for christmas <laughs> sort of like <laughs> content are you ladies Blimey. strictly watchers strictly come down yeah uh, yes we are I, I am i i don't really watch tv um, no. I, I read books. And I, 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 then, I then have to tell Alice about the TV she's missing out on. Um, but yes, I, I, I kind of like I pick and choose really the years I watch. But I was quite interested to see this year. Obviously, um, the the actress from EastEnders who no. is deaf, who I think should win really because she cannot hear music at all and yet can dance like that. It's amazing. She's a beautiful dancer. It, it is. She's it absolutely is, fantastic. Absolutely. But you will probably also be aware that there has been an enormous increase in the number of people who are wanting to learn British Sign Language purely as a result of seeing her performing on Strictly. So it's about visibility of mm -hmm. people with disabilities in different contexts and people being shocked and surprised. I never knew that a hearing impaired or a deaf person could dance to music. How can that happen? And we need to see more of that happening. The normalisation back to normal of disability. The learning sign language was probably one of the best things I've ever, I've ever done because it actually comes in quite hard. I mean, my mom, my mom can be talking to me across a busy shop and I will immediately start signing to her. But then I realised, well, she doesn't know sign language. And I'm thinking, I have to, I have to teach her the basics, at least finger spelling. Because, or when she's wanting to have a gossip about somebody in earshot. <laughs> and I'm like, we've got to teach you. We're like, oh, she's trying to tell me something about my dad very quietly. And I'm like, what? What? And she's like, I'm like, let me, let me at least teach you finger spelling. She's like, because it's quite handy, really. Um, we've just started watching... Um, the the little bit of TV that I do watch is like the geekiest TV that you can find. So we've just started watching uh, the latest Marvel spinoff uh, of Hawkeye with Hawkeye. Jeremy Renner. Yeah. Um, and he is his character is um, hearing impaired. I, I believe I was debating this with my husband last night. I believe he's uh, got no hearing in one ear and has a hearing aid in the other. And they've just introduced the villain who I believe is also hearing impaired. So, you know, it's just getting those, getting people, you know, as you say, Roland, just, just putting people out there and showing the world that these people actually exist mm. is, is a big step. Yeah, yeah definitely. Really? Absolutely. But I really do want her to win because she, uh, she can't hear music for Christ's sake. And she can dance like that. That is skill really yeah i think that's the thing is isn't it it's that's that's a real that's a dance skill that is yeah that's nothing to do with her disability either mm. she's properly skilled at moving a body in a way that people go oh that's that's a nice dance uh, <laughs> whereas if, I, if you watch me dance it's like a funky chicken <laughs> really is all my all my moves come from my elbow it's uh, <laughs> quite a marvel <laughs> have we reached the last day of christmas 
On the twelfth day of Christmas, think of reclaiming the festive season for disabled people. There's so much negative stereotyping going on that it's about time disabled people found something positive to celebrate. I'm talking Christmas presents and the power of the purple pound. What about a wheelchair using Barbie doll? Yes, Toymaker rolled one out in 1997. Whilst this has been a slightly light-hearted look at Christmas and disabilities, the sense of isolation and loneliness that many disabled people can feel throughout the year is even more pronounced at Christmas when we are force-fed images of stereotypical happy families. If you know someone who is living with a disability and who will be on their own this Christmas, the smallest of gestures can make the biggest of differences. Roland, you are brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. You honestly, you can are. I'm absolutely... writing and put it, frame it on my wall. <laughs> <laughs> um, please, please come back and join us for an episode in the new year. That would be absolutely. I would brilliant. be more than delighted to do that. Thank you. Oh, Great. thank you yeah. so much. It's been um, an absolute pleasure. And a hoop no, been... and a ball. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely lovely. I hope I know that you don't. You, you're not like keen on the, the festive period, but I hope you're feeling a little bit festive. Um, <laughs> I, I I will make an effort on the day. I'm not going to wear a, a paper hat or anything like that. No. <laughs> but I will I will make an effort to be Chris at least Christmas friendly. Good, good. Well, uh, Christmas friendly. We'll settle for Christmas friendly. I'll um, I'll eat a mince pie in your honour. Thank oh, you yeah. very much. <laughs> I cannot believe that this is our first Christmas and that we will have been doing this actually for like an actual year. I know, and... it's, cra it's crazy, isn't it? Um, I really can't believe how well the uh, podcast has been received by so many people. We, when we started this, we thought we were going to do an episode every two weeks because we didn't want to bore people with disability. And we are constantly surprised at how well our episodes grow over time and are received on the day of release. Um, so thank you so much to everybody who's taken the time to support us and listen, listen to us throughout the year. Please stick around for year two. <laughs> We've got some really fun, exciting stuff planned. I'm really excited for it. And yeah. like Lucy said, like we, we could not, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for our listeners. You guys have, have got, you're, you're the reason we keep coming back and doing this and we love it and it's so amazing. And we've had such great feedback and I feel like, I feel like, you know, I'll, I've heard so many other podcasts say, you know, I feel like our, our listeners are a community and they're, you know, and I care, about, but I really do. I yeah. always thought it was just, you know, oh, they're just saying that because they pay the bills, but I get it. I get it. You guys. <laughs> Nobody's paying our bills on this. No, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, However, no, so... if you'd well. like to donate to our GoFundMe to pay our bills, you can find all the information for that on our website. 
It is Christmas after all. It is. It is the time for giving. (laughs) But no, as well, I just want to say um, that meeting you, Alice, has probably been one of the best things that's ever happened to me because it's been a very um, difficult period of time to get our head around. We've been through lockdowns and all sorts. We've not actually met yet in person. At the time of recording this, we've we've still not met. It's in the works, though. It is in the works, yes. We may not be able to remember it by the time we finish, but it is in the way. Um, and it's 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 one of my things that I'm most proud of is making friends with this girl on the internet who said, "Shall we shall we make a podcast?" Because what we've got now is absolutely fantastic, and it's something that I know we are going to have in our lives for a very long time. So thank you. Don't cry again. No. Look, no tears. It's fine. My eyeballs are dry. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everybody. We will see you on the other side. Merry Christmas. Christmas! <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Labelled Podcast. If you like the show, please rate, review and subscribe. You can follow us on social media at Labelled Podcast. Our thanks go to our editor, Adam Hall. Our music composer, Maisie Crunden. And our graphic designer, Sarah Coley. We'll We'll see see you next time. time.